0: Внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Федор, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин никто не слушал. Послушайте Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу, а сотрудники безопасности. С новым вас. С новым веком.
1: They've granted loans to a French political party. They've spread around oil profits in Italy. They've given material support to German legislators. They provided funding to a Dutch think tank that later became a political party, and they have cultivated and facilitated far right news websites in Sweden. Over the past decade, Russia and other authoritarian regimes have spent more than $300 million interfering in democratic processes more than a hundred times spanning 33 countries. The frequency of these financial attacks has increased exponentially. And in doing so, Russia has exploited a vast array of legal loopholes in the West, exploiting in-kind donations, secret conduits, straw donors, shell companies, and nonprofits. And now, a new groundbreaking report has lifted the veil on this stealthy assault on Western democratic institutions. And today, we will talk to the author of that report about what Moscow is up to and what the West can do to protect itself. Hello from my makeshift studio in Washington DC's funky Adams Morgan neighborhood and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast. Which is produced by the University of Texas, Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. My name is Brian Whitmore, an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Capitol Mall in DC's Capitol Hill neighborhood is Josh Rudolph, a fellow on malign influence at the German Marshall Fund's Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work. On Russia's sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, who also served at the IMF, the U.S. Treasury Department, after a career on Wall Street. Quite a resume, Josh. Welcome to the podcast. It's been a long time that I've wanted to have you on.
0: Yeah, hi, hi, Brian. Thrilled that the pod is back, and honored to be here with you. All right, great honor to
1: have you to get the ball rolling. I basically just wanted to start off by handing the mic over to you so you could share with our listeners the top line findings in this report on covert foreign money, which was published just a couple of months ago by the German Marshall Fund Alliance for Securing Democracy. So yeah, take it away. Just give us your top line findings just to get the ball rolling.
0: Most Americans know that Russia has its online vectors of interference in democracies, cyber attacks, disinformation, and the rest. And what our research shows, Brian, is that their financial attacks are just as threatening. Like you said at the top, you know, we found more than 100 cases, examples of elite Russian expats now living in London where they donate to the Tories or in the case of Dmitry Furtosh, operating through his British citizen proxies, shell companies, foundations. Yevgeny Prigozhin helping out the Kremlin's preferred African leaders so they can hold power by giving them package deals of backpacks of cash or tailor-made news outlets, troll farms, mercenaries. There are the fringe media outlets secretly funded by Russia, from junk news websites in Ukraine to the Balt News outlets secretly owned by Rossiya or the MAPIC and Redfish outlets owned by RT, the far-right news websites you mentioned in Sweden. And typically, they support either the the far-left or, more recently now, the far-right to fund what Russia sees as Destabilization of target societies from within. you know, up until four years ago, when I was still in government, we had this complacent sense that this was mainly a problem for Europe that was obviously, you know wrong. our Our, our research shows that the United States has been hit by covert foreign money more than any other country. And now this year, u s. you know law enforcement and intelligence officials get this too. Nobody saw this because it was back in May. Public records requests came out at the height of our coronavirus lockdowns. We're all distracted. But the FBI sent a memo earlier this year to the 50 states warning about what Russia's tactics mm-hmm. might be in this year's election. And in addition to you know, reprising and updating the old cyber and disinfo vectors of 2016, the FBI identified three new methods that I'd broadly consider covert foreign money. It's campaign mm-hmm. funding, business or economic levers, and secret advice for candidates. So the FBI also said that Russia hits countries that have loopholes allowing foreign assistance. And they didn't specify which countries are loopholes. But that's what our research Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. does by identifying the top seven loopholes exploited more than 100 times.
1: Now, one thing I noticed, I mean, the report is not just about Russia. It's about authoritarian governments, including Russia. But when I looked at the incidents that you charted in a very empirical way, I mean, what I loved about this report is it was such a data-driven report. I mean, a lot of us have been talking about this in the abstract for a long time and bringing up anecdotal cases of this happening. I've been screaming about it for a while, but I have yet until this report, I have not seen something so data driven. When I looked at your data and you actually did it in bar graphs, the lion's share of this is Russia and a little teeny bit is China. Before we move on, because I wanted to at least acknowledge that fact that this report wasn't just about Russia, but as I read through it and looked at your data, it was mostly about Russia.
0: Yeah. And and that wasn't, you know, a constraint of our survey. We we're open to any country, you know, authoritarian or democracy having done this type of thing, any cases in the past decade. But yeah, there were a couple of Middle Eastern actors, Iran and the UAE, but mostly it's like 15% yeah. China and the remaining 80% all, yeah. all. So Russia, Russia is the big kahuna on this.
1: This seems to be largely a Russian phenomenon, and I think the purposes Russia is doing it for, as somebody who follows Russia for a living, it seems that Russia is trying to disrupt our democratic institutions and processes and undermine trust in our democratic processes. In fact, back in 2013, there was a white paper that came out produced by a Kremlin-connected think tank that basically laid this strategy out. And this was widely reported in the Russian media. I blogged it at the time. And the idea was that there was a recognition that there are all these what we call wedge issues, cultural issues in the West, if you will, that can be exploited. And this white paper was explicitly arguing that Russia should exploit these wedges and effectively turn Putin into the leader of this global traditionalist Community, much like in the, you know, the common turn where the, you know, the Soviets sought to be the leaders of this communist international. This was kind of a nationalist international, if you will. The recommendation was let's exploit things like divisions over multiculturalism. Let's exploit things like division over LGBTQ. And then we saw this process play out, not just with the disinformation but also with the covert finance. And I was wondering if you kind of came across any evidence of, I mean, I know you did because I read the report, but (laughs) if you could could talk a little bit about um, what what you saw in that policy being carried out, because this was a weird case. They basically telegraphed what they were going to do, and then they did it.
0: Yeah. And you're exactly right to pinpoint 2013. That's when all of this really started to change and gear up to a higher level. That was one of the things I was struck by. I mean, you referred to that column graph. Based on the colors, it shows that it's 80% Russia. Folks should pull that up and look at the fact that it's actually a time series. And in terms of the timing, these cases jumped up starting in 2014, 15, Mm -hmm. 16. Before that, it was two to three new cases a year, You know, some Firtash shenanigan in London or presence Mm -hmm. in the Baltics. But then you know, Since then, it's been 15 to 30 new cases in each of the past five years. I mean, that also includes, like I said, about 15 or so percent China, because that happens to be when Xi Jinping also came in and elevated United Front work. But for Putin, it really changed, like you said, in 2013, because up until that point. He had built political ties with Western Europe through friendly heads of state like, you know, Schroeder or Berlusconi, mm-hmm. to, a, to a lesser extent Sarkozy. But then it was really it was in that second half of 2013. It seems that he started to really feel rebuffed and frustrated that these mainstream politicians are not going to let him have his privileged you know, sphere of of interest in his so-called near yeah. abroad. And so then it really changed starting the next year.
1: I mean, you also put a lot of meat on the bones, not that there wasn't any meat on the bones before, of the work of my good friend Anton Shekhovtsov, a Vienna-based scholar who has looked at the Russia's ties to the far right and now increasingly the far left, but his, his fantastic book that everybody should read, Tango Noir, Russia and the Western Far Right. It basically talks about this, but here we see the scope of the financial assistance to a degree that we, we hadn't seen before. I I liked how these two works kind of dovetailed with each other.
0: Yeah, Anton's work was really foundational. And really, I cited a bunch of times in the report because he lays out the thinking in those years, 2012, 13, and he kind of talks about how Putin's engagement with the European far right was very limited up until that point. It was basically Mm -hmm. like, you know, some election observers or something, Mm -hmm. you know, they could come on on Russian state television if they want. But then it really changed alongside the invasion of Ukraine. It was in in that first half of 2014 that, you know, Putin decided he was going to start really aggressively promoting these peripheral politicians and parties, make them bought and paid for human assets meant to serve, wittingly or not, as human active measures to destabilize the liberal democratic consensus.
1: Yeah, I mean, it started to heat up following the castling of 2011, Mm -hmm. 2012. Mm -hmm when Medvedev did not seek a second term as much of liberal Russia I had hoped he would, mm-hmm. when Putin returned to the Kremlin, the Bolotnaya protests, which, you know, these were an organic middle-class uprising in Russia. This was, but the way it was seen in the Kremlin was Western meddling in Russian affairs. Mm-hmm. On our off-mic conversations, you wanted me to address the, what I call the what aboutism question, mm-hmm. because there is this, feeling that, well, don't we interfere in Russian elections? I mean, you've worked in government for a long time. The short answer is no. (laughs) If the official policy of the U.S. is to support free and fair elections, if that is seen as interfering in elections, that is not the case. I know many people point out the example of 1996, when you private U.S. consultants, were openly working on the Yeltsin campaign. That is hardly the same thing as a covert, stealthy effort to undermine democratic institutions. There were American consultants working on Buddy Yeltsin's re-election campaign in in 96. They were doing so in the open. There was even a cover story, if I'm not mistaken, in Time or Newsweek, I forget which one, about this. You know, here come the Americans. So it's not exactly like it was something they were trying to hide, and they certainly weren't carrying out the will of the United States government. But... To address this issue, you got to look at it a little deeper. I mean, the way I think about it is Putin is doing to us what he thinks we are doing to Russia. And that's the exactly. an word, what he thinks we are doing to Russia. And so that's that's what appears to be happening here to address that. What I wanted to do, because God, there's so much I want to get into here. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to do briefly, at least, is to break down some of these vectors that you talk about, the in-kind contributions, the straw donors, the nonprofits, foreign donors to media and so on and so forth, and how these kind of worked into certain case studies. I mean, you looked at France. We usually looked at a lot of them. The ones that jumped out at me were France is the obvious one, the Marine Le Pen National Front, the loan to them. The, The Czech Republic is one I followed pretty closely, actually and wrote a piece for the New Republic on that back in 2010 called The Velvet Surrender that looked at Melosh Zeman's ties to Luke Oil and other Russian entities. So if you would kind of like, let's unpack some of these things and kind of bring them to life a bit.
0: Sure, and you know, one way we could do that is just kind of to continue the chronology from twenty fourteen and to show how this has really stepped up to a higher level. We talked about support for Marine Le Pen. That actually started early in 2014, April, right Mm -hmm. alongside the war in eastern Ukraine. And then
1: just as the war in eastern Ukraine was starting and right after the annexation of Crimea.
0: Yeah. Actually the day after Putin's annual call in show in early 2014 when Mm -hmm. he talked about supporting, you know, far right politicians the day after that's when the money started flowing through shell companies to Marine Le Pen's mm-hmm. father's association. Anyway, it continued to be about Ukraine in 2014 when the Kremlin funded this Dutch think tank that, you know, the Forum for Democracy to set up to campaign against mm-hmm. Ukraine's EU association agreement. Right.
1: And then in, in successfully, terms of, I might add, they were they was defeated in that referendum.
0: Exactly. Exactly. They were successful. They had support. They had informational support. They had financial support. And now they're a leading populist far right political party in Europe. And then we move into 2016, where the tactic really pushes further into the Western halls of power with Brexit and the U.S. election. And then, you know, throughout the West since then, it's, you know, supporting AFD in 2017, Matteo Savini in 2018, possibly Rudy Giuliani's associates digging up dirt on Biden. So it's really become a go-to hybrid toolkit across a number of these vectors, which you could dig into more if you want.
1: Yeah, the Czech case to me is fascinating because it's something I've researched. I'd like you to kind of spell out what you dug up there, because I find that case really fascinating with uh, President Zeman, his ties to Luke Oil. Like I said, I've been writing about this since back in 2010, the use of kind of these Gazprom shell companies like Vemex as vectors of influence in the Czech Republic. The lobbyists with ties to Luke oil and their ties to the Czech presidency, you poured a lot of data on, again, what I was able to report out with anecdotal evidence and interviews with intel people and foreign ministry people, you really threw a lot of data on this. So I'd be interested in hearing that because that was going on before.
0: It was, and I should distinguish, and this is actually a good way to be able to explain, we did have a very high bar in terms of the evidence of how much is needed and how to really credibly establish through good journalism or or even official law enforcement or security service records to really have proven the case about what the activity was and the attribution all the way back to an authoritarian regime. And there are a number of these cases that we did dig into and didn't get there. And one of the most obvious is like the whole history of, of Trump real estate and you know, or, or whatever, emoluments abroad. There's all kinds of all these cases that have been out there, you know, right. a lot of speculation. Past
1: raise up to the level of enough evidence for you to put it in the report.
0: Right. So they're not in there. And the reason I bring that up now is because, you know, President Zeman, he himself and his political finance is not in there as a case. We discuss it a lot. And we what we do include is a case is the one that you mentioned, the Lukoil paying, you know, one and a half million dollar fine for Zaman's basically like Martin Naji, who his economic advisor who goes along with him and has a right. his long history of working in Russia himself through the nineties and everything. So there are some peripheral cases like that, but when it comes to, you know, a top head of state level type figure, like the the bar. The threshold is just really high for us mm-hmm. of you know wanting to be very sure that we have it proven. So we do not have that with Zeman or with Trump. We um, But there are cases like Salvini when you do have it. You, you
1: do have it, that. right. The beneficiary of the work are a lot of really good Czech journalists, mm-hmm. mostly Yaroslav Shiborny at the magazine, Respect. But a lot of Czech journalists were digging in not just to Zeman's ties, but to his predecessor, Václav Klaus's ties. And it is basically now a matter of public record that Luke Oil paid for the publication of Zaman's climate change denial book came out i mean it was like around 2010 2009 or so so there are there, there are anecdotal cases but i do appreciate that you had a very high bar in terms of the data that you required and the fact that you had such a high bar in how much you were able to prove to the to your level of satisfaction there's a lot out there what about brexit did that pass your bar
0: yeah so absolutely that's in there in terms of the i mean there's enough documentation the investigative journalists in London around Aaron Banks and all of the ties that all all the meetings that he was having with you know with Russian officials and the obscure financial network I mean there is a degree to which it is not proven where the origin of massive I mean he made basically he made the, the biggest political donation in British history to Brexit and has not demonstrated where exactly it came from. It's all behind a bunch of tax havens, but it came at the time he was being courted by Russian diplomats and spies. And there's reporting by The Times that it seems he was basically getting rich by having his South African diamond mines, apparently, potentially funneling gems, illegal gems, perhaps from Zimbabwe, a diamond trade that's controlled on intelligence services and organized crime. So, you know, you need to be in their good stead to be able to be making money there. And, And even then we, you know, we, in keeping that high bar, that high threshold, we probably still would not have included that case if it wasn't for the fact that we then also got, and this goes not just with banks, but with some of the other big Russian donations in London, we got something to hang our hat on. And if an official, proceeding which was the the ISC report out of the the UK parliamentary report last summer that basically identified a handful of top donors to the Tory party classified in it reportedly including a lot of focus right on, on banks as well. So that's interesting that that one rose up to your
1: level of proof, because there's, you know, this is still basically openly debated whether or not there in fact was Russian meddling in Brexit. I think it's pretty clear that there was. The question is just whether or not it was decisive. And yeah. if the is that close, I would argue everything's decisive.
0: In that case, as with a lot of elements of the Mueller investigation, our threshold is not that you need proven illegality. Right. These cases are not all illegal. I mean, actually, this 83% of the time, it's-,
1: it's the a scandal yeah, is what's legal. This is right. what I want to get into in the second half, because that's, yeah, yeah. that's uh-huh. the
0: net. So I say that to say that, you know, we, we take more of a counterintelligence perspective yeah. of is there a very substantial risk, and it seems you know, apparent ties that you can kind of see the details of who was talking to who and, and where, where money was from, without necessarily- Proving that it was illegal because it has not yet been proven that Aaron Banks did anything illegal.
1: One thing I'd like to do before we move into the second half and talk about policy, because since you've been been there, but if you can take one case and just drill deep and kind of give the listeners a sense of how this works, like the mechanics of how this works from beginning to end, I don't know if you have something like that at your fingertips or that you're comfortable diving into, but I think that would be really, really useful.
0: One interesting case, just in terms of the mechanics of how it operates, is one that surprises some folks. This is just to very slightly deviate from Russia for a second. The biggest known case of foreign money in the 2016 election had nothing to do with Russia or Trump or China. It was the Emiratis secretly funding a, a secret mission by George Nader and his other you know co-defendant, straw donors, to curry favor with and and by potential influence with Hillary Clinton. Uh, And so like George Nader was going off to the UAE and meeting with with officials there and then coming back with, and talking to his straw donors over WhatsApp. And you've got all of the details of their WhatsApp communications, coordinating different meetings. They're trying to get meetings with, and are succeeding at getting meetings at various levels. And you've got from the indictment that came out about a year ago, all of the details of how much money it took. It it takes like half a million dollars to get a meeting with this level of person or this Mm -hmm. much for that and how they structured it. They they laundered it through. One of his co-defendants was this pro on this California financial executive who knew how to move shady money through financial system, including with retail online payments. And so he was kind of the engineer on that end. And yeah, you've got you've got all of their their WhatsApp messages amongst themselves talking about their meeting with Big Sister, which is reference to Hillary Clinton or, or Big Sister's husband and how they're moving the baklava, which is a code word for money coming mm-hmm. from the bakery in a redacted foreign city. So you mm-hmm. pretty much got all the details there of the whole flow. Although even there, they, they still the prosecutors did not charge a violation of the foreign source ban. So, I mean, we could talk about that. but it was-
1: Yeah, no, this is what I want to in the second half, because I like I said, they're part of this is illegal activities. But part of it is the big scandal in not just the United States, most Western countries, because mm-hmm. we regulated so much to the point where there are so many loopholes. The scandal is what's legal, what mm-hmm. you can do without breaking any law. When the Russians gave that money to Le Pen, they didn't break a single French law. Exactly. And that's what struck me so much. Why is it why is it legal for a hostile foreign power to contribute to a political campaign openly in, in France?
0: Yeah, exactly. And so that's that is why this research is really geared towards policy. Yeah. And, you know, rather than starting with a couple of loopholes or, you know, campaign finance issues that everyone talks about, we, we start with the actual activity. Mm-hmm. It, 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 we have a very empirical approach of starting with what we can see, the bad behavior, and then figuring out what made it either legal or what was the, the mechanism that, you know, helped in order to Obscure it, and then, as we'll talk about, you know, soon we we work with almost 100 leading experts to figure out how to close those loopholes.
1: Yeah, no, and when you kind of step back and look at this, uh, you know, with the full sweep of what's been going on in Russia domestically, in in the discussions going on among the elite, it is clear that they feel they are they are in an ideological war with liberal democracy, Mm -hmm. and all the ends of all of this, from the Russian perspective. China and other powers, I think, have different agendas here. But the Russian, and I'm not a sinologist and I don't pretend to be, but the Russian agenda is very clear. They feel they are at war with liberal democracy and they are trying to undermine it.
0: That's Yeah, absolutely. A a political war. I don't know how much I would call it ideological per se, because, I mean, you've been a leading voice on, you know, corruption being the new communism. And corruption is not... I mean, maybe it's semantics, but corruption is less an ideology that can really win over hearts and minds than communism per se. I mean, it's it's about filling the pockets of loyalists rather than, you know, winning over the hearts and minds. So that's not an ideology anyone's going to sign up toward
1: toward ideological ends of undermining the viability of democratic institutions and undermining the trust of citizens that live in democratic countries in their democratic institutions to pull this thing down and say, "Say, you, you are no better than us. You cannot preach to us about governance because there is a war of governance I see going on, a systemic normative struggle between Western liberal democracy and this kind of authoritarian kleptocracy, which is a coherent system of governance. I, mean, I make this argument in a piece I published this week, actually, with the mm-hmm. Latvian Transatlantic organization called The Revisionist why the West has a Russia policy and what we need to do about it. We come about it from different angles. We come to remarkably similar policy recommendations at the end of the day. But I basically argue that Russia's domestic political system is founded on graft. That's how it works. It's a a clan-based system in which graft is used to basically control the elite and that now that system is being turned outward in an attempt to spread this type of system as far out as possible, beginning in the former Soviet space, moving to the former Warsaw Pact, and then moving farther west. And we see different stages of this in U- places like Ukraine or Moldova, and then later in places like the Czech Republic and Hungary. And then now it's moving west and hitting places like the UK and the US as well. So it's uh, not to mention Germany and France. Um, so it's, uh, it, that, that's what I'm mean when I say corruption is the new communism. The corruption is the means to undermine the opposition ideology and can spread this kind of kleptocratic, autocratic method of governance. Moscow feels comfortable operating in that world.
0: Yeah. So I guess, but that's exactly as you said, the point is that the, the ideology has gone from being the end of communism to being the means Of corruption. But it's not clear, as you, you know, very thoughtfully discussed with, with Mark last week, it's not clear what the end is in terms of a you know, a social contract in late Putinism that, you know, it would make it internally consistent.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, this is an ongoing discussion that that a lot of us have been having. I'm not sure we're going to ever find (laughs) the the answer. You find three Russia watchers, you're going to get five opinions on that one. But on that note, I want to move on. I want to remind our readers, this report is called Covert Foreign Money, Financial Loopholes Exploited by Authoritarians to Fund Interference in Democracy by Josh Rudolph and Thomas Morley, published by the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Funds we will continue our discussion and look at some of the policy recommendations floated in this report to address this threat. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast. My name is Brian Whitmore, an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. The Power Vertical Podcast is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Capitol Hill and Washington, D.C. on the other side of the mall is Josh Rudolph, the fellow from Malign Finance at the German Marshall Funds Alliance for Securing Democracy who coordinated work on Russia's sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama and who also served at the IMF, the U.S. Treasury Department, after a career on Wall Street. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical Blog and access all power vertical products at powervertical.org, which is a brand spanking new website, which looks really cool, and which was designed by my colleagues at the UTA McDowell Center. You can also follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical.
0: Vehicle.
1: Okay, so to get the ball rolling for this segment, I wanted, Josh, actually to quote you to yourself. I wanted to quote a passage directly from the report, and it's something that really jumped out at me, because it's something I've actually thought about, the way you juxtaposed this. You wrote, and I quote, The last time the United States faced an emerging threat of civil infrastructure converted into asymmetric weaponry, the adversary's arsenal did not include dirt on opponents, straw donors, shell companies, nonprofits, ads, media outlets, or emerging technologies. Rather, it was airplanes flying into buildings. Over the seven weeks following 9-11, among other responses, The U.S. government enacted the most sweeping overhaul in a generation to its anti-money laundering laws, started reorganizing executive branch agencies and functions around combating terrorist financing, and persuaded 30 countries to impose similar financial security protections. You continue, the United States has failed to simply fortify its financial defenses since malign influence and other tools of election interference became top national security threats in 2016, although some preliminary policy development work has begun, mm-hmm. Why do you think this was the case? Do you think there is a window of opportunity to change this? And most importantly, I want you to kind of spell out your policy
0: recommendation. I mean, in terms of why, the, like the difference versus nine eleven is that authoritarian interference, starting here in the United States, especially in twenty sixteen, and our response to it, it, it succeeded in driving us further apart. It's the the politicization of foreign interference mm-hmm. that's become the biggest obstacle to addressing it by pitting Americans against each other, you know, encouraging us to distrust our institutions.
1: And I would just to add to that, if I can interrupt for a second, I mean, I would argue that the foreign interference is aimed at exacerbating this polarization.
0: So, yeah, it, I mean, you could, be, you might be able to argue the same thing about terrorism as trying to, at least for a certain crowd in the gray space, like push them to one side or the other. And mm-hmm. the way that terrorism ultimately becomes a moral threat is. By making us question our institutions and mm. you know close down our, our open society and all that, but in any case it's worked much better it's more it's a more explicit objective and probably more strategic perhaps with authoritarianism and it's it's working so we, like we should talk about these these legal loopholes and our moves to um our recommendations for how to close them but the single strongest thing that we need to do is to say that it's not about any one you know candidate or party it's about the integrity of our democracy it's a life or death matter of national security and has to come before all personal or partisan loyalties because mm. we're all American.
1: No, I would agree with that. I've
0: been thinking
1: for a while about you know, how the hell do we get the Russia debate out of partisan politics and have a bipartisan national consensus? Because this is a matter of national security we're dealing with. The other thing I would add on to the differences with 9-11, you know, the twin towers coming down is a very dramatic image. There is no dramatic image associated with all of this ma- malign influence through covert finance and other active measures. There's no dramatic image. So it's hard to rally the population around a threat that is so stealthy and so insidious and so under the carpet, you know, unless geeks like you and I who make make our living trying to look at this, right? It's a hard thing to rally the population around. Just like it was easy to rally the the population around fighting godless communism, it's harder to rally people around fighting expansionist corruption. It's, it's, It's trickier. It's a trickier PR cell.
0: Yeah, it, it arguably does have a very salient, at least if not image, then event in the mind of the public, which is the 2016 election. Like everyone knows about Russia, Trump, Russia and all this stuff, right? As much as they do about 9-11. But, but half but the country
1: doesn't believe it happened.
0: Exactly. It's not a building coming down. It's a political event that we're already divided on two sides. Then from that starting point and then for it to work and then you get, you know, a president that that is, you know, unable to talk about it in bipartisan or, you know, national security lens, anything other than his own sense of personal legitimacy, it's, it's just has not worked, obviously. But yeah, no, moving that. forward, I hope,
1: yeah. I mean, I certainly hope we can get out of the partisan divide. And this goes for both parties, I would argue. I mean, I don't think this is a one party thing. I mean, I think you have a lot of Russia hawks now that weren't Russia hawks not long ago. <laughs> <Quite> frankly, <laughs> right. You know, They've radicalized us. A lot of us. Russia doves that were Russia hawks a long time ago. And this thing is just really broken down largely along partisan lines. And we got to get it the hell out of there. And we got to get it into a bipartisan consensus like we had at the start of the Cold War defending western democratic institutions which we should all value I would argue
0: and, um, and and to answer your your both to respond to that and to answer your other question about there being a window to do this I do really think we've got a historic window that we're now we're now in it's opening I mean I can tell you first from just the the research process both the the substantive input that I got and the reception over the past 3 months for, on both sides of the aisle like you say right. in in Washington D there are a lot of influential people in DC who who get this and who are ready to take action. And then now clearly with with the result of our election. I mean it it is a matter of of public record that Joe Biden really gets the need to kick foreign money out of our elections. He's you know written in the campaign pledges yeah. emphasizing it's important, it's says. His op-ed with Mike Carpenter. He's talked about it in his foreign affairs piece, his foreign policy speech. It's the first thing he, he refers to when he talks about foreign right. versus everyone else talks about the online stuff. But he, you know, even yeah. going back to May of 2015, his Brookings speech where he sounded the alarm about corruption and its role in foreign policy and how it's carried out by Kremlin oligarchs. He was ahead of all of us on that. And so now, within the next year, in his first year in office, he's pledged to host a summit for democracy. And at that summit, two of the three pillars that he's going to where he's going to ask for country commitments are fighting corruption and defending our elections from authoritarianism, including mm-hmm. including foreign money. So, I mean, call me an optimist, I think it is possible that, you know, by a year from now, we could have this conversation again and we'll have closed a number of these legal loopholes on a bipartisan basis and started to internationalize the defenses.
1: I mean, the, the policy I propose, and I think it goes beyond elections, because I think this isn't just elections are certain inflection points where we really see this and everything comes into sharp focus. But this is an ongoing thing these are ongoing influence operations that are ongoing trying to undermine the public's faith in democracy to create vectors of influence and in ready-made lobbies through you know the corruption as communism to use my formulation i mean i'm arguing that we have to have a policy i call it hybrid containment mm-hmm. uh, to create a containment policy that is designed to forestall all of this and i you know make some recommendations like updating fara uh, fara right. was written in 1938 it's not been updated since the australians have updated they've created a far law based on our far law but it's updated to the modern times that serves as a as a good model on getting things like beneficial ownership under control like i say the way i tagline this as a former journalist i like to talk in sound bites we need to clean up the state of delaware and we need to clean up the city of london right and that basically summarizes i mean putin didn't invent offshore he didn't invent money laundering but he's using all these things and we can it's in our power to clean these things up I'm arguing for a DEFCON style response ladder, kind of early warning system and escalation ladder about when something is escalating to the point of being a national security threat. And we can learn a lot from our Lithuanian and Estonian allies on this who have done just really good work in putting up those kinds of systems. If you could spell out some of your recommendations, I know we overlap a lot
0: here. Well, no, well, you're exactly right. I mean, I really appreciate everything you said. Elections are... My colleague, Jess Brandt, likes to you know, not a start point or an end point in foreign interference. They're a flashpoint. And then it continues. And even with that, you know, summit for democracy, I appreciate that one of the pillars is going to be defending our elections and democracy from authoritarianism. But another one is corruption itself, regardless of mm-hmm. elections or I mean, because I mean, the idea there is, is it's the new communism. It's what holds together our adversaries. And it's, yeah. it's the weapon, the vehicle to come at us. And so that is going to be a real opportunity to start an international conversation about how to dismantle, you know, what what has been called money land or kleptopia um, or the secrecy world in in a, in a, a a multilateral way. And so that is like one big agenda item more broadly than interfering in democracy per se. But then in terms of my recommendations on covert foreign money, the report is set up with eight chapters. The first seven are each in reference to a, a legal loophole. It needs to be closed. And then the last one is about the illegal behavior that needs to be addressed, addressed by coordination you know, mm. among allies and with law enforcement and the intelligence community and get the interagency inter- working together so yeah happy to talk through a couple of those yeah comments, no, I mean, or-
1: some of your recommendations like broaden the definition of in- income contributions report campaign contacts with agents of foreign powers mm-hmm. those things would I think fall under the umbrella of a kind of what I like to call fara on steroids. To update the Foreign Agent Registration Act, to make it, to give it more teeth, to make it more clear, to bring it more up to date with today's realities. I mean, several of yours kind of disclose foreign donors to nonprofits. Shouldn't that fall under a new FARA? Others fall under kind of fixing the beneficial ownership area, outlawing anonymous shell companies and restrict subsidiaries to foreign parent companies, for example. I'm kind of looking down your list and seeing these things would fall into certain areas of legislation, I, I think. And the other thing I would add is I think that none of this is going to work unless it's international, unless it's transatlantic, unless we can create an international regime in concert with our allies in order to do this. I mean, COCOM during the Cold War, the export restrictions on the Soviet Union and its allies was something that was coordinated with the United States and its allies in NATO plus Japan. I mean, I would love to see a transatlantic standard on a foreign registration for foreign agent registration act, a transatlantic standard on beneficial ownership. And I would even go so far, and I have made this argument at NATO, is that I would love to see not just ministerials for defense and foreign ministers at the alliance, but ministerials that include finance ministers right, and right, interior right. ministers, and exactly. bring these things into the national security discussion, because that's where the national security discussion is is going. So that's my two cents. But I want to give you a chance to unpack your Rex here.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely right. So and again, kind of like you laid it out. First, we get our own house in order. And that starts with Things like, you know, the in-kind contributions, broadening the definition of a thing of value in our campaign finance mm-hmm. law. The Shield Act is the one that would uh, require reporting of campaign contacts with foreign powers. There's, of course, beneficial ownership on the, you know, financial regulatory side. For, for nonprofits, it's called the Disclose Act basically require nonprofits mm-hmm. that, that are engaged in politics to have to disclose their donors. In terms of media, you know, for, for ads, it's the Honest Ads Act which would require social media companies, and some of them are already doing it, but not in a consistent, coherent way, like to disclose who's ultimately paying for mm-hmm. political ads. One of the new ideas that we have that I'm pretty excited about is that of having ad libraries to have outlet libraries so that basically any media outlet that wants to use U.S. tech services, whether it's web hosting or ad tech or search engine or or be on the social media platforms, they have to report their beneficial ownership to the the U.S. tech companies and have it posted online. So then we know who's funding all, you know, every little media outlet. light
1: is the best form of disinfectant. Exactly.
0: And that one is really important because whereas ads were the main vector, you know, or the vector that got a lot of attention four years ago, just this past fall, the Kremlin seemed to be operating a lot through through these outlets on the far left or far right that Mm. the FBI flagged and the social media platforms. Took down, so we've got to very quickly move in the months ahead to you know start moving legislation to to close down these these loopholes, get our house in order, and then go very quickly pivot towards internationalizing the system, like we did after 9/11. Um, yeah. and and that's when AML became AML CFT also you right. know, counter financing exactly. counter- exactly. of terrorism we needed the same thing after
1: after the second world war when things like like you know Bretton Woods and other things became whether you know in reality became part of the national security infrastructure. So I think there is a there is I think I agree with you that there is a, a window of opportunity. I spoke on these issues with the Republican Study Committee, which is one of the most conservative groups in the United States Congress. You know, they are hawks on Russia though. And I said you're never going to have a better opportunity for bipartisan cooperation on this because you're going to you're never going to see the Democratic Party so hawkish As it is right now. So I think there is a real possibility for bipartisan cooperation if you see a Republican Party, which is naturally hawkish on Russia, or historically has been naturally hawkish on Russia on these issues, and a Democratic Party, which is hawkish at the moment. So I think there might be a political window opening if we could dare let ourselves be hopeful right now.
0: And even, you know, I mean, we'll have to see what happens in January with the Georgia runoffs, but like in the event, that we have a, a rare case of a new presidency that that does not also have its, par- its party in control in the Senate. We may end up seeing, who knows, we'll see, if, turning the, the head of the normal ordering where, you know, it's, it's usually after losing control of Congress in, in the latter end of the administration that you see the foreign policy and the national security work. But it may well be that, you know, th- this work, as I've laid it out, is all to be done on a bipartisan a basis. All of these recommendations have, you know, input from both parties, and so I do think, especially by focusing on the foreign threat rather than like a dark money broadly to include domestics, you know, political speakers, we've very carefully kept that out of the equation to do it in a bipartisan national right. security way. I think we can get that done next year, and then, and then internationalize the defenses, build up in a way that, frankly, it should not have taken. Four years, but here we are after well, here the election we are, and, yeah. I mean, democracies draw strength from our ability to reorganize against emerging threats, even if Winston Churchill was right that Americans you know, only do the right thing after trying everything else. But uh, <laughs> you know, the, I, I think the time has come to do the right thing and lead the world and taking, uh, taking on covert money.
1: From your mouth to God's ears, this is a very important report. It's called Covert Foreign Money, Financial Loopholes Exploited by Authoritarians to Fund Political Interference in Democracies by Josh Rudolph, who's my guest today, and Thomas Morley, was published by the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall fund. And on that note, that's all we have time for today as we're bumping up against the end. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My name is Brian Whitmore, an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from Capitol Hill on the other side of the mall in Washington, D.C. has been Josh Rudolph, the fellow from Reliance Finance at the German market Funds Alliance for Securing Democracy, who coordinated work on Russia's sanctions at the White House's National Security Council under President Barack Obama, who also served at the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department after a career on Wall Street. You can follow Josh on the Twitter at Josh Rudess, J-O-S-H-R-U-D-E-S, and I highly recommend that you do. Thanks, Josh, for a great discussion. It was great to have you on. Always fun to chat with you, Brian. Thanks. We'll have to do this again. And I'd also like to thank our production team, Lance Legas, who's in the virtual control room, and he keeps the lights on, and all the complicated machines, well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion, and Cecilia Wynn, who handles our all-important post-production duties. I would also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at the brand spanking new website, powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at powervertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team. And Noise MC, if you're listening, I want the rights to Piesta de Radio because I love using that song and I got to get the rights to use it. So Noise, if you're listening, send me a direct message on, on Twitter or something.